Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. The good news from Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thank you, Alan, and you may be seated. All right. Well, as we enter into the season of Lent and we, we come out of Epiphany, uh, we have been talking these last weeks about 
building a community that is living in the light together. And so we've been open about things that we don't talk about often. And one of those things in the last few weeks has been just talking about finances, talking about money. And, uh, you know, particularly we did our finance town hall last week. And those are things that historically as a church we have kind of just been a little gun shy because we, we all know the stories of seeing Uh, how that stuff can be manipulated, can be abused. And so in our attempt to create safe haven, we've shied away perhaps to the point that we owe you all an apology because Jesus talks about finances and money quite a bit as something that is at the heart of the spiritual life. And so one of the commitments we made is that whenever a text comes up in the lectionary that gets at some of these ideas, we're gonna just enter into them and we're just gonna talk about it because that's what the scriptures say. And, uh, and then as luck would have it, the next two weeks happen to get into exactly these topics. And so uh, that was not really pre-orchestrated, but in order to uh, follow up with our word, we're gonna talk a little bit more about finances, about our resources, about uh, abundance and scarcity and the generative life that we have in God's good kingdom. And all of that will give us a framework for Lent. So let's get into it. We're gonna have that framework. Uh, I actually hinted at it a little bit last week. You have some cards there and we'll go through it up on the screen today. And we'll use the prodigal son story as the backdrop for this. And the prodigal son story is one of my absolute favorites, as I mentioned. It only shows up in the lectionary, which is a a tool we use to help guide the readings throughout the, the year. It only shows up in the lectionary twice and both times are in this year. The lectionary is a three year cycle. It gives the prodigal son story twice in year C, which is what we're in. And so we thought, well, let's go through it twice and we're gonna use it both to begin our Lenten journey and then we're gonna circle back to it in Easter because if you pay attention to the story, you get elements that have to do with wilderness, with scarcity, with repentance, with forgiveness, and then you get elements that have to do with resurrection into new life. So we see both the Lenten story and the Easter story in the prodigal son. And Richard Foster says that this is a watershed story in the Bible. He says that either God loves like that story or he doesn't. And if we can open up to a world in which God loves like that, oh, the good news, the good news uh, right there. And so let's get into that story together. We'll start with verse 12, and we're going to look at the younger son. We'll start with the younger son, and he has this brazen request to his father. Uh, He says, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falls to me. And uh, let's just stop right there. That is an insulting request right? Because you don't get an inheritance until those who are the generation ahead of you pass away. Uh, It is insulting to go to your parents who are still living and say, I want what's mine and I want it now. Uh, And that's essentially what the younger son is doing here. And so he essentially, he says, let it fall to me. There's almost this little indication in the text here that the son is essentially saying, like, I would prefer that you would drop dead now so that I could have what is coming to me. And, uh, and culturally, it's interesting, the father does not owe the younger son anything at all. Culturally, the, the inheritance goes to the older son. And so the younger son is sort of like a little presumptuous, even in expecting that anything is coming his way. And look at what the father does. Think about this with your view of God. The father absorbs the loss, he absorbs the pain, and he gives and he forgives. 
And so that's where our story begins. Now, what we end up with then is that both the older son and the younger son suddenly come into a lot of cash, right? Uh, all of a sudden, they receive this inheritance that was supposed to be way out there, and then now they have it in their bank accounts today. There's this interesting thing that happens when you suddenly come into a lot of cash, right? And I'm not necessarily speaking from inheritance here, but like just general observations about the way of the world is when someone who has not had a lot of financial resources suddenly has a lot of financial resources, interesting things happen in the way that they respond to that, and people tend to go one of two ways, and we're going to see those responses in the sons here today. And so what the younger son does is uh, he decides, like, I've got all of this stuff that I didn't have before, and, uh, and it reveals something of the undergirding framework within which he sees the world, right? And he takes what has been given to him, and he immediately goes off, and he begins living in wild living or dissolute living, or as Alan Pearson said in the, the scripture reading in the first service, terrible living, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so let's look at what happens with our, with our model here. Um, on the left side, what we've got here is this idea that I started developing last week, and we'll just spend some time with it. It is possible in life for the flow of accumulation, meaning what we have, to go up and down. We all are familiar with this. Sometimes we have seasons of simplicity. Sometimes we have seasons of splurging. Sometimes we have seasons where we've got an awful lot in our, in our resources, in our hands, and other times it is really tight. We don't know how we're gonna make ends meet. But regardless of whether you have a lot or a little does not necessarily impact how you show up in the world. We all know people who have an awful lot and they're very stingy, we all know people who have very little, and they're very generous, right? And so in addition to the flow of accumulation, there is the flow of participation, which means, and, and what I mean as I say that is like understanding that this is God's big, good world, and I want to get in on it. I want to participate in this God who is always giving, always open-handed. And so on the left side of our model, we have the far country of scarcity. And what I mean by that is that there's this place, this way of living in the world where we never have enough. And not because we maybe don't have enough, but because we have not defined what enough is. And if you have not defined what enough is, it will never be enough, right? And so I've got to always get more. And, and as a result, and because I have this small world view, whenever anything comes into my hand, I've got to cling to it for dear life and not let go. And so we end up in the far country of scarcity. On the other hand, the abundance of the Father's house, a trust in God's overflowing goodness, the, the, the way that we see the Father represented in this story. And because I trust that God is always giving, I am free to give to you. I can be open with my life because I can trust that there will be what is needed when it was needed. And so whereas scarcity is animated by getting more and it becomes this vice grip that closes us off to possibilities, abundance is generative, it's creative, it's always seeing new possibilities, it's open to a wider worldview. When you receive an inheritance, it's always gonna add to the flow of accumulation doesn't necessarily mean it's going to add to the flow of participation. And so we see that in the younger son. And if we look at the younger son's life, he is spending his whole life up to this point on the left-hand side of our model here, right? And it starts with gluttony. He, he's going to reject participation with everybody, including his own father and his own brother. 
I want what I want. He gets what he wants. He immediately goes off to a life of his, himself, by himself, and he squanders it in gluttony. And then when, uh, after a season of gluttony, he looks around and the text says, he begins to be in need. And so he slides into the lower left quadrant, the famine quadrant. And he looks around and he's starving and he would have loved to have fed himself with the pods the pigs were eating. And so it's like the younger son's life is stuck in the scarcity of the far country. And he's reacting to the ups and downs of accumulation, but he is not willing to participate in any kind of wider flow. Last week we looked at Luke 6. Jesus says, if you withhold Uh, forgiveness, if you withhold giving, if you live in a world that is animated by condemnation and by judgmentalism, then that seems to impact the world we get in on for ourselves as well. It's almost like there's this pipe, and if I close myself off to you and I will not forgive and I will condemn and I will judge, we end up having those same things kind of come back on us, right? And uh, there's this interesting thing where we try to block the dam so that we can receive all of, we want to stockpile what, is, what the stream is bringing to us. And so we dam up the, the river, but it ends up just actually damming it up on ourselves. And so I was listening to a podcast with the always electric Rob Bell, and he put some language around this for me. He said, it's almost like the energy turns in on itself. Right? Like you're, you're trying so hard to protect, to preserve, to keep, and it ends up coming into yourself, and you, and you end up tighter and stingier and more scarce and more fearful and more fretful. It is life in the far country. And so uh, look at this, verse 14. Um, it, it's fascinating here. It says that no one would give him anything. Isn't that interesting? The way others relate to him is the way he has related to others. Uh, but then he came to himself. He came to himself. And he starts asking these questions, right? It, uh, there's something fascinating here that shows up, which is that money, your budget, your finances, are both numbers and they are narrative. And uh, what's happening here in the story is that the numbers on the son's budget stop working, and that leads him into wider consideration about his very life. He starts asking bigger questions. Mercy allows there to be a financial shortfall, and that becomes the catalyst for the big questions. What am I doing here? How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and despair, and I am dying of hunger? And so one of the reasons why paying attention to our money can be a great Lenten practice is because it's, it's opening us up to the bigger questions at the heart of our lives, and it's showing us something about ourselves. Here's another paradox. Money's always pointing ahead. In this case, it's pointing him to say, I got to go back home, right? But it's also pointing back at us. It's revealing. It's exposing something about the nature of our inner reality. And so we see that here in the text in verse 18 uh, and 19. If you go to the next one, thanks. He says, I'm going to get up and go to my father. And he says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Treat me like a hired hand. The financial scarcity that he's reacting out of is simply the overflow of a deeper inner scarcity inside of him, right? Like there is something happening in his, his whole worldview and his own sense of belonging in the father's house that is causing him to just see himself as a slave at this point, 
right? Now, I want to be clear. What I don't mean is think really positive thoughts and wealth will come to you. We all know that that's nonsense, right? That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there is something about the, our relationship with money that can be an indicator of where I see myself as an orphan or a slave in the world. Where do I see myself as less than a child of God? Where am I operating in a place of scarcity in God's participatory economy? And that's the younger son. And then we come to the older son. And the older son, like if the younger son is living on the left-hand side of our model, the older son is living on the bottom row of our model. And what he starts out with is fasting, right? He receives this inheritance too, and actually very admirably, very diligently, he stewards that well. He does not go off and waste it. He actually, out of discipline and out of faithfulness and out of honor to his father, stays, and he keeps working the land, and he keeps actually inherit, like investing his inheritance into the future. And so if money is only the numbers, then he's doing it right. He's doing it by the book. He is uh, actually playing the long game here. And there's something admirable about that. There is a practice and a discipline in him that looks a lot like fasting in the way he's relating to his money. However, money is not only numbers, it's also narrative. And after a while, it's like his practice begins to lose the plot. And he begins losing touch with the larger story of why he was doing all these good things in the first place. And I think this is especially the danger for those of us who are followers of Jesus or perhaps those of us who have spent a lot of our life in church is that we can do a lot of really, really good things and completely lose touch over time with the heartbeat behind those good things, with the story behind those good things, with the Father behind those good things. And so he moves from the fasting category into the famine category. And he says things like this, all this time, Father, I've been working as a slave for you. And you, I have never disobeyed one of your commands. Do you hear this under this, right? It's like the discipline has devolved into a resentment. And what began as simplicity has become sanctimonious. And I think we've all known, we, perhaps in ourselves, times where we end up like this. And so he ends up tracking and tallying every number and person in his life, including his very brother. And in the process, his austerity that he's become to, he started to wear as a badge of honor, it's actually caused him to, to lose the plot. He has served the meal for so long, he forgets that he has a slot at the father's table. And so the older son is living governed, if we go to the next one, yeah, you've already got it up there, thank you, 25 through 29, he is living governed by these categories, categories of justice and fairness and deserving, and those things are beginning to define the whole world for him, and it's all become facts and figures, and there's no space left in his mental map for music and dancing. So when he hears the music and dancing, he doesn't have any room for a party of grace. That's not what this is about. It's about deserving. It's about doing it right. And so we see that he has lost his sense of sonship as well. He calls aside not the father to ask what's going on. He calls aside one of the slaves, right? Like that's who he goes to relate to. And he says, what's going on? And the slave tells him what's going on. And then we get these really, really sad words. When the father throws a feast, he has become so stingy 
he refuses to go in. And I think those are cautionary words for those of us in the church today. Because we can do all the right things, we can do all the moral things, we can do all the practice things, and that's all well and good. But if it causes us to devolve to a place where we miss the party that happens and we refuse to go in, we become the ones on the outside looking in to the, the, the lavish grace that is at the heart of the good news. And so finally then, we come to the Father. And throughout this whole story, the Father is the one who's living on the right-hand side of our model, right? I mean, the Father knows how to live out of abundance. He gives away everything he has, everything he has, while he is still living. He gives it all away. It is the ultimate fasting, And then when he sees his son coming up the road, he goes and kills the fatted calf that he has been waiting for years for the right moment. I mean, it's like that perfect bottle of wine or that great bottle of scotch that's just been aging, waiting for its moment. And he sees his son and he says, this is the moment. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a party. This son of mine has come back to life. He sees a bigger story than what's in it for me, and he lives from the house of abundance. And so I want to end today with a paradox, and I hope that this might give us some language for Lent. And the first part of the paradox is this. All things are yours. All things are yours. There is this line here that is incredibly profound. The father says to the older son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. That is the gospel, right there, one line. Child, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And it's actually true. The fatted calf does not belong to the father anymore. Uh, It belongs to the son, right? Because the father gave it away. In the very beginning of our story, he gave everything he had away. So all this time, the, younger, or the, the older son could have killed the fatted calf whenever. He says, you never even gave me a goat. Well, yeah, he did. He gave you everything he had at the very beginning of the story. But somehow he was not able to receive it in his, his own heart. And so the father says, everything I've got is yours. And you can get in on this wider world. Can we open up our eyes to see a wider world? Whatever place feels scarce in your life right now, whatever feels short in your life right now, can you look around at the trees and the stars and the sunrise and the birds and the green grass going? And can you hear the father say, all that is mine is yours, everything. It's all yours, In my world, there is enough, and therefore we can join what Thomas Merton calls the general dance. Like, there's just enough. There's enough for me. There's enough for you. I don't have to fend for myself. I'm not at stake. There's just enough. We can just join in the general dance. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. You see, he's just opening up layer upon layer upon layer of this bigger, broader, wider world and saying, it's all yours. It's all yours. Go into Lent knowing all the Father has is yours. And here's the other side of the paradox. All you've got, it's the Father's, right? It's the Father's. And 
every dollar that ever comes into your bank account came from somebody else's bank account before, and eventually it will go into somebody else's bank account. You and I are the temporary stewards of the Father's trust, saying this has been placed in my hands, and it's not mine, it's yours. And what are we going to do with it? And so all that God has is yours, but all that you have is God's. And we see the other side of this in 1 Chronicles 29. They're they're devoting and dedicating the temple. And they say, riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and your hand are power and might. They're talking to God. And it is in your hands, God, to make great and to give strength to all. But who am I? Who am I? And what is this people that we should be able to make a free will offering to you? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given to you. You probably recognize that language. That's what we say every week when we hold up the offering. All things come from you, and of your own have we given you, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand, and all is your own. And so this Lent, where's the invitation for you into participation, into abundance, into the maturity of the general dance? And what would it look like to feast at the Father's house and pull up a chair for somebody else to join the feast? I wanna close us with some words from Lisa Leeper, who's a beloved member of our parish community. She wrote the blog last week. Um, we have a blog called the Afterwards Blog. If you're not familiar with it, we send it out every week. Follow us on social media, you'll see it. And it's just a reflection on whatever happened in the service the week before. And it's just a way of kind of getting a window into what's going on and how are people receiving what's happening on these Sundays. And Lisa put words so beautifully around what I tried to say last week, so I'll I'll use them as sort of a benediction to close our sermon here. She says this, Jesus is always inviting us into the cruciform life, the life lived with arms outstretched. It goes against common sense that the more we give, the more we receive. But living with outstretched arms opens up our heart to each other, to the community around us, and even to ourselves, allowing us to breathe deeply and feel the inrushing of God's abundance. Every breath is, after all, a grace note from above. Do we really believe that there is enough in a world under the control of the good God? What exactly would it look like then to be a cheerful giver? There are no easy formulas to plug in here. These are essay questions, not equations. But God invites us daily to take advantage of his superseding, rule-bending economy based on his ever-generous heart. And so here's to leaving the hard, earthly math to the accountants and living lavishly in God's bounty open-armed and open-hearted to him, to ourselves, to each other, receiving the measure that is shaken down and overwhelming and running over to the top with room for more. We've got some writers in this church. My goodness. Beautiful. Let's pray. Thank you, God. You put the ring upon our fingers and the best robe on our backs. And I honestly don't know how to receive that. Help me believe that, God. Whether we've been in the far country or we've been right in your house but working out in the fields so much we forget about the feast, would you help us to come home to you and invite others along with us? And we pray this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.